Well, as we transition here to our time in Scripture, I want to begin this morning by offering a correction of something that I said a few weeks ago. Oftentimes, when you bring the Word of God to bear against what is around us, culture, practices, whatever it may be, uh, there is some kind of um, uh, chastening that happens in our minds and in our hearts, and we certainly want to let that happen. But it's very easy when culture or the church, when error is pervasive, it's easy to make very broad and sweeping statements. And sometimes I do that just because I'm trying to move on to the next point and just point out something very obvious. But there are also times when that's not very helpful. Uh, Because in the end, we want to make sure that we're precise with what we say. We want truth to be truth and not to have um, comments that are made that are unhelpful. Um, because there really are genuine errors out there. We want to bring the Word of God to bear to those specific errors. And uh, in the end, uh, we want God's truth to prevail. And even today, we're going to encounter some errors uh, that are brought to light by our text, and I want to make sure I do that clearly and fairly and, uh, and generously. So we will uh, deal with some error today, and hopefully it's helpful to you. But I'm going to do my best to try to be specific if I do offer a critique, I think that would just be beneficial, uh, certainly for you and certainly for me. So that's the heart I have today in doing such a thing. But our study today brings us to the beginning of Matthew chapter 10. So if you have your copy of Scripture, you want to go to Matthew 10. This is the commissioning of the, of the 12 disciples. Now this point in the text marks a transition in Matthew's gospel, For the last year and a half in this narrative, Jesus has been ministering essentially alone. He's been doing all of this work by himself, but the disciples have been in tow. And every single time he meets a new one, he calls them to follow, and they begin to follow. And so the the crowd around him has been growing for the last year and a half of his ministry. And what is he doing? What is he ministering with? Well, we see a sample of his teaching ministry in Matthew 5 through 7. So Matthew records uh, the Sermon on the Mount. That is certainly sort of a, uh, the kernel of what he spends his time teaching is in that sermon. We also see a sample of his powerful healing ministry in chapters 8 and 9. So uh, Matthew, in writing this gospel, he is recording essential components to the life and ministry of Jesus, and it is designed this way, the teaching ministry in 5 through 7, the healing ministry in 8 and 9. And then there's going to be a transition point into chapter 10, But in Matthew 9.38, which is right before we transition here, he tells the disciples that the harvest is plentiful, the workers are few, but they are to beseech, to ask, to entreat the Lord that he would send out workers into his harvest. Now Jesus, even though he tells them to pray and ask and beseech the Lord, Jesus then turns and he takes that literally. After telling the disciples to pray, we read in Luke 6, verse 12, that Jesus himself actually sneaks away to go and have some time in prayer. He prays for the whole night, and then when he comes back, he returns and he is going to commission his 12 disciples to become laborers to enter his father's harvest field. And chapter 10 is the chronicling of that commissioning. Now, while the commissioning itself does span the length of the chapter, we're going to focus today on just the first four verses as an overview. And uh, my plan, uh, if you'll permit it, is to actually walk through probably not all 12 in individual sermons, but I want to spend the next couple of weeks bringing us into the lives and ministries of the disciples. Uh, I might do this in perhaps six or seven messages, but I really want us to get to know these men because as we move through the rest of the gospel, we're going to bump into them a lot And I want you to know who they are, what their testimony is, how they were called, and what God does with them. And so today will just be an introduction to what we're going to do in the coming weeks. But let's look at Matthew chapter 10, starting in verse 1. Jesus summoned his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Now the names of the twelve apostles are these, the first Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. 
Now, this is the first time in Matthew's Gospel that he records the list of the twelve here. And we see similar lists like this one in Mark 3, Luke 9, and also in Acts chapter 1. Each of the lists contains the same men, even though there are slight variations in the order of how they appear in the list. And even at times there are moments where they will, uh, the authors of whatever gospel that they're in, or account they're in, will, will give a different name for the same man. And we're going to see that. Let me just give you an example. Simon the Zealot is called Simon the Cananean in two of the lists. While Thaddeus is also known as uh, Judas, the brother of James. Now, sometimes they don't want to confuse the two Judases, and so they use different names. But you get the idea. We're talking about the same men, but slight variation. We're going to cover this in the weeks to come. But look again at verse 1. Again, Matthew 10:1. We see that Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Now at this point, the disciples, already been, they've already been called to follow Jesus. If you sort of pan through the, the gospel accounts, you're going to see that there is a, a process or a progression in how they're called. They're first called to salvation. Jesus will call them and, and bring them. He's to say, follow me. And they really have a conversion experience. Even if the gospel writer doesn't record the exact experience, we know that they're, they're becoming uh, they're, they're becoming Christians is really what it is. But they're following Jesus. They're learning from him as disciples. And there comes a point when they're, when they're transitioned into a, a ministry calling. And then beyond that, there's even greater calling to now be apostles and do the work of ministry once Jesus has, has gone. Uh, but there's a, a progression to the calling. Uh, and it's, it, at this point, they're now beginning to become commissioned to this work of ministry. Verse 1 says that Jesus summoned his 12 disciples. The Greek word that's used in the original for summoned is uh, proskaleo, which is literally to call to oneself. It's to, to call a person and say, here, you come here and follow me. Now, we know that Jesus has all these other followers, and the question is, well, how many followers does he have at this point? And we really don't know exactly. We know that a little bit later on, he actually appoints 70 different apostles or, uh, disciples to go and, out and do ministry, but there's even more people beyond that. Every single place that Jesus traveled, he had a crowd around him, varying in different sizes. But here, he's selecting and calling 12 specific men to do something. You, he's saying, you 12, you come here, I have something that I want you to do. These 12 specifically are disciples. What is a disciple? Well, the Greek word is mathetes, which refers to a student or a learner. In Jewish culture, there were those young men who would literally follow a rabbi. A rabbi would be a teacher, a prominent teacher. And literally, they would go from town to town, and his disciples would follow behind him. And they would be walking behind him as he walked. And as he's walking, he would talk and they would listen, and they would learn, and ask him questions, and they would observe. And so they were just mirroring him in every twist and turn. Hopefully, someday, either they would become mature as followers in the future, or they themselves might also become rabbis. But the idea is they would literally follow their teacher around everywhere he'd go, and they would learn. The whole goal was to learn from the teacher, and then go emulate his example. So these were the disciples of our Lord. They followed him, and they went everywhere he went, and they learned from him. But when he had set them apart, he called them, and Matthew records, he gave them authority. Now, disciples don't generally have authority. You know, they're, again, they're followers. They're following behind. It's the teacher who's doing all the stuff, and they're learning, and they're, they're listening, and they're growing. But he then transitions how he does things, and he says, I'm, I'm going to give you some authority here now. This Greek word exousia can be translated authority. Some render it the word power, power or authority. But we're going to see how this plays out. Jesus here gives them authority, and he says, over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. He gives them amazing authority, the authority that only he possesses. And what gives him the authority to give them authority? That's what we have to answer that question. Because when we talk about who has authority, Jesus Christ has this authority. Later on in Matthew eleven twenty seven, he states, All things have been handed over to me by the Father. 
So the Father is, God the Father is who, is, who gives uh, God the Son, Jesus Christ, the authority, and he says, all things have been handed over to me. Matthew 28, 18, Jesus told the disciples, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So not just what I do here, also all authority in heaven has been given to me. We see this manifested in his teaching ministry, whereby at the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, we see that the crowds were amazed at his teaching. And the question is, well, why? Was it just that he was a really good communicator? Was he a dynamic speaker? Well, that was certainly part of it. Jesus was the greatest preacher in history. I mean, he invented preaching. He invented vocal cords. I mean, he knew what he was doing. But they weren't just amazed at what he was doing uh, oratorically. They were amazed, as Matthew records, because he was teaching as one with authority. This message is mine. I invented this message. I wrote this message. That was essentially what it is. I don't preach as one having inherent authority. I preach the word of God to you. So my, the, the limit to my authority is vested in how clearly and accurately I can minister the word of God to you. I have no authority on my own. Okay, you need to understand that. Pastors, elders have no inherent authority. It is all delegated authority through the ministry of the Word of God by Jesus Christ himself. But Jesus has inherent authority. I say to you, he has the right to do that. Okay? So Jesus is teaching with authority in regards to his healing ministry. It's also, we see that there. Several times he demonstrates his power, his authority over sickness, over nature, over uh, demons, over even death. Remember back to Matthew 9, 6, Jesus heals the paralytic who is lowered through the ceiling. Remember this? And he eventually heals them. It takes them a few minutes to do so, which is a little bit strange because a person's coming through the roof and they're paralyzed. You'd think the first thing he would do would heal him physically, but Jesus forgives his sins. And then to illustrate the power, the fact that he has the authority, he says, so that you would know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And then he says, rise, take up your mat and walk. So the miracle was authenticating his own inherent authority. I have the right to forgive your sins and let me prove it to you. And he heals him. So Jesus is flexing and demonstrating his authority, not just in the teaching ministry, but also his authority over uh, all things, over creation, over uh, healing, over sins, over the spiritual realm, everything. Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. We understand this pertains to his divine right to speak and to act, as well as to his ability. He has the right to teach, the right to heal, the right to forgive. He also has the ability to do so as well. It's one thing to say that you can do it. It's a very different thing to actually do it. And Jesus demonstrates that he can do it. John 5.27 says that the Father has given him all authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. So Jesus not only has the authority to teach and to act and to forgive, he has the authority to judge. And the Bible teaches that there's coming a day when he will judge all the nations, every single person in the world. But here in verse 1, Jesus is specifically giving his disciples authority for healing and essentially exorcism. He gives it to these 12 disciples. And the reason is, is because they're going to go out, they're going to start doing ministry, they're going to start teaching and proclaiming his message and this is for them to be able to accomplish the same miracles that he did. And Matthew is careful, however, to phrase it in a certain way. Look at your text in verse 1, the second half of verse 1. He says that when the twelve had been given authority, they were given authority to heal every kind of sickness, uh, every, every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. That phrase should be similar or, or trigger something in your mind because we've read it several times before. This exact phrasing appears in chapter 4, verse 23, speaking of Jesus. It also appears in chapter 9, verse 35, speaking of Jesus. And so Matthew is doing something textually. He's connecting what Jesus is doing and has done to what the disciples are now going to be given the ability to do. So twice already we see that the exact same thing. Jesus was able to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness, heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. And now in chapter 10, verse 1, the disciples are given the authority to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. So there's a congruency. There's a sameness that's happening here. There's a, a connection between the two authorities, between the miraculous inherent authority of Jesus and the delegated authority to the disciples. In fact, by, chapter, or by verse 2, Matthew adds another designation for the twelve. They're not just disciples. 
They're not just disciples. They're now apostles. Apostles. This is the first and only time that Matthew uses this word, apostle. It appears one time each in Mark and in John. It appears six times in Luke, 28 times in the book of Acts, and 34 times in Paul's letters. Apostle. What is an apostle? Simply put, it is one who is sent with authority. It's a messenger. It's an envoy. It's an ambassador. Let me illustrate it for you. For those of you who have kids, let's just say that you go tell one of your children to go tell another child to clean their room. Okay? And they run downstairs and they say, all right, you have to go clean your room. Now, you know, just as well as I do, when one child says to the other child, you have to go clean your room. No, I don't. And then you hear the pitter-patter of feet come back upstairs. Dad, they won't clean their room. Well, why is that? Well, because you have no authority to tell them to clean their room, right? So then what do you do as a parent? No, no, you tell them that Dad said to go clean the room. Dump, 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 dump. They go back downstairs, wait a couple seconds, then the other kid comes back up, and, comes in, and then go clean, goes and cleans the room, right? The room gets cleaned then, well, hopefully. But the reason that the message was received and uh, effective is because of the inherent or the assumed authority given to the messenger. The messenger has no authority of their own. Usually it's the younger child that you go to tell the message to the older child, right? And there's no authority there. But the idea is that there is an assumed, there's a delegated authority. That's the idea here. The disciples are going out not on their own authority. They're not going because Simon Peter has all this authority in Israel to go and do things. Because who's going to listen? These men are not rabbis. They're not scholars. They're not Pharisees. They don't know the law. They, might have, they certainly went to Jewish training school when they were kids. They all did. They were all taught as children the basic things of, of their faith. But they weren't the scholarly, erudite, learned men. They were tax collectors and fishermen. Who's going to listen to these guys? Nobody. But Jesus gives them miraculous power. He gives them ability to perform signs and wonders to authenticate the authority that he's given them. Now, when they go and they say, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and people go, so what? Prove it. And they do some kind of a sign, they heal somebody, or they raise somebody from the dead, it becomes evident. That whatever this message is, this has got to be divine because this wouldn't come from any other person. So they use this power. It's for a purpose. It's to validate and authenticate the message. This is really, really important. Really important that signs are always for a sign. They always point to something very specific. And in this case, they are authenticating the message. And what is the message? Look at verse 7. Jesus tells them, this is a little bit later down, we're going to go through this in a few weeks here, but he says, as you go, preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the message. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now there's going to be a lot more attached to the message because you can't just walk into another city and give one sentence and then go home. They're going to explain. They're going to explain about the Messiah who's come, Jesus of Nazareth. They're going to explain the works he's doing. They're going to explain the, the, the core tenets of the gospel to them that they have to turn from their sins like John was telling them in the wilderness to repent of their sins, to do the deeds that are worthy of repentance and to put their faith, to, to set their hearts on the Messiah who has come, who's come to deliver them. So that's their message. The kingdom of heaven, the, the kingdom of God is at hand. Therefore, as we know from the Bible, turn from your sins and put your faith in the Son of God. But they are to go out into all the, all the surrounding towns, all the area, and proclaim this gospel of the kingdom of heaven just like Jesus did. It's no longer Jesus traveling around by himself doing this. Now he has got a small army that he has really deputized to go and start doing this ministry with him. And as they go, they're telling people about Jesus, the Messiah, the forgiveness of sins, the righteousness of God, and they are also going to display the power of God. And when they do this, it will become very evident to all people. Again, the signs and wonders, they don't exist unto themselves. They're not simply divine fireworks for no purpose. They serve to authenticate the message of the true gospel. Several years ago, there was a man named John Wimber 
who converted to Christianity. He was excited to follow Jesus Christ. He began attending a Bible church, and he was listening for what he could expect to find in his new life as a believer. After a few weeks, he approached the pastor, and he he said this, and this was in an interview he did in 1995. He asked the pastor, so uh, when do we do it? And the pastor says, do what? And he says, when do we do the stuff? What stuff? And Wimber persisted, this stuff in the Bible. And he began to articulate the signs and the wonders and the miracles and the healings, and he was talking about all those things, all the things that Jesus did. The pastor, however, told him that those things were not for today, and John left discouraged and even discontented. Within a few years, he had founded what came to be known as the Vineyard Christian Church in Anaheim, California. At the core of this church experience was a pursuit of signs and wonders and miracles and experiences and supernatural gifts. The vineyard soon became a movement, and by 1982, Wimber was traveling everywhere as a church growth consultant. Soon he was teaching classes at Fuller Seminary where his path crossed with a professor named C. Peter Wagner, who would then carry on Wimber's vision even further. C. Peter Wagner uh, became instrumental in a movement later known as the New Apostolic Reformation. In their book, Defining Deception, by Costi Hinn and Anthony Wood, they explain the goal of the NAR, the New Apostolic Reformation. This is what they say. The goal is to restore the office of apostle who takes authority over the church by appointing leaders who will influence world government. To restore the office of apostle in order to take authority in the church. Wagner deemed the year 2001 to be the beginning of this second apostolic age. And these new modern-day apostles claim to have direct revelation from God, also to perform signs and wonders, and to wield authority to influence the trajectory of churches and church movements. Prominent members of the new apostolic reformation include Lou Engel, Rick Joyner, Todd White, Kenneth Copeland, and C. Peter Wagner. Now, before his death in 1997, John Wimber was clear he didn't support the new direction of this movement. He was not for this new apostolic movement. And he also railed against the abuses that he saw in the movement that was around him, much of the charismatic movement. He was very opposed to the hysteria that he had seen when people were running around and barking like a dog. He was against that, uncontrollable shaking. He was against the Word of Faith movement, prosperity gospel. So he rejected the extremes in that movement. But the point I'm making here, and I want you to see this, the basis for all these intertwined movements is the belief that these modern practices of signs and wonders and healings, all the things that they're seeing, as well as the advent of new apostles, they believe this is sanctioned by the Bible. When they do all these things, they go back and they say, look, the Bible says we do this. That was John Wimber's contention. We want to do the things that Jesus is doing. That's why we're going to do what we're going to do. But I want to make two points to clarify this. And I want to be careful about this, but this is really important. Because this movement is still around, it's actually still growing, and it's finding its way into churches of undiscerning pastors. Two points need to be made. The first has to do with the qualifications of apostleship. What is an apostle? How do you become an apostle? Contrary to the NAR, you can't just pay a membership fee, which is what they have, a membership fee and have one of your friends in the NAR sort of bring you in. It doesn't work like It's not a fraternity. This is what the Bible says about apostleship. How did the 12 men receive their apostolic authority? There were three key factors to this. The first is this. They had to be an eyewitness to the resurrected Lord. They had to be an eyewitness to the resurrected Lord. We see this in Acts chapter 1, verse 22. We also see it mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 1. All of the apostles, including Paul in Acts 9, saw the resurrected Lord. Secondly, the apostles were given ability to perform verifiable signs and wonders. Verifiable signs and wonders. And you read about it all throughout the book of Acts. Acts chapter 5 is helpful to see that to the point where even people who were, who were crippled and lame and didn't have arms and legs, they could actually pass underneath Peter's shadow and they would regain use of their body 
again. They would actually stand up and start running around. It wasn't just healing a migraine. These were, these were miraculous, undeniable signs and wonders. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 talk about this as well. So the apostles were given this undeniable authority to perform signs and wonders. The third component of this, the apostles were chosen and called directly by Christ or directly by the Holy Spirit, as we see here in Matthew chapter 10. This is where we see this, as well as Acts 126. All of these, all of these qualifications and all these conditions, beloved, have to be met and they have been met by all the apostles in the Bible, and none of those qualifications are met by anybody today. There is no more or are no more apostles today right now. And, and just even to go further than this, even if you read uh, charismatic or continuationist scholars, and one example would be Wayne Grudem, you read Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology, he, you know, I would disagree with him on some of his views on the signs and wonders and things like that, and that's okay, we can talk about that. But one thing he's, he's emphatic on is that there are no more apostles today. So this movement to reestablish apostles is outside even the mainstream charismatic movement, and it's extremely dangerous, because as soon as you say, I'm an apostle, and you walk into a church, you say, I'm telling you from the Lord, you must do X, Y, Z, and the church has to respond. And now you can do whatever you want or whatever they let you do. It happens, it destroys churches. But it's important, not just the fear of the unknown of what this was, might be. I'm telling you from the scriptures, this is really important. Apostles are appointed directly by the Lord. They're given undeniable power and they are called directly by him and they have seen him. The second key point I want to make regarding all of this is the so-called new apostles is that the early church, okay, the very first earliest church that we understand the first couple years, they understood that these men, these apostles, were unique. They understood them to be unique. Matthew 10, verses 1 and 2, which is what we're looking at today, this is not providing a pattern for normal Christian ministry or a regular apostolic office. This is a very specific thing. And how do we know? Well, the text says so right here. Look at your text. Keeping in mind that according to the qualifications of apostleship, these men, they haven't yet met the qualifications, but they will. And we see that as, as the Bible progresses. We see it in the book of Acts, and Paul talks about it in his letters. But Matthew is writing this gospel account several decades after these things take place. Okay, this gospel of Matthew was written somewhere around 50 or 60 A.D., so several decades after these things happened. And these group of men, this group of men, they were already well-known. Everybody in the church knew who these guys were. And they had seen them and talked to them and heard their ministries and preaching and everything like that. Acts 2, uh, 2.42, they were uh, committed and devoted to the apostles' teaching. That's how they understood these men to be. But Matthew has written this gospel account and he records a couple different things here. Look at verse 1. Verse 1 says that Jesus summoned his 12 disciples. Verse 2, they're called the 12 apostles. It's these men that Jesus gives this authority to. Look, at, look down at verse 5. Verse 5, it says, These 12 Jesus sent out after instructing them. So we see... The twelve disciples, the twelve apostles, these twelve. Even in the text, it's very specifically pointing to these individual men. They're unique. Jesus called them for a very specific purpose. Why am I belaboring this point? Because Jesus' commissioning of the twelve, again, was never meant to be normative. For all ages of the church, it was unique. And he gave them charge to preach the gospel and to authenticate that message with signs and wonders. But even when you trace the mystery, the gospel, the, the, excuse me, the ministry, the gospel ministry, all throughout the book of Acts, read Acts, and you start to see that there's a shape to this. The signs and the wonders, they follow the apostles and they follow those who are immediately connected to the apostles, but they're not normative for the other churches. Furthermore, nowhere in any of the epistles, anything written by Paul or John or Jude or anybody else, nothing in the epistles commands us to engage in this kind of apostolic miraculous ministry. 
There's no, there's no verbiage on it. There are corrections against the abuses of it in 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14, but we're never commanded to engage in such a ministry in terms of signs and wonders and apostleship. Rather, Jesus sends the disciples out into the world to engage in duplicatable ministry, ministry that you can do, you and me. We even see this in Matthew 28. In Matthew 28, it's very clear. We call this the Great Commission, don't we? Matthew 28, Jesus says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And here's the command. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. It is the normal rhythms of the Christian life. It is discipleship. It is the ordinances. Baptism is here. Certainly the Lord's table is involved in that. Uh, It is teaching. Teaching ministry. We are to make and create obedient followers of Jesus. That's our job. That's not just my job, by the way. It's your job as Christians as well. All of us are charged to make disciples everywhere we go. And that's the sense of even the grammar. As you go, as you live your life as a Christian to make disciples, to teach other people. And you say, well, I don't know how to do that. If you've been walking as a Christian for any length of time, find another believer who's been walking with Christ fewer years than you have and spend time with them. Teach them everything you know. For the things that you have questions about, tag me in. We're here to help, right? That's essentially the idea of it. Now, how do you do that? Curriculum and different studies, you can be a little bit creative. Certainly the Word of God Bring somebody through the Word of God. Spend time. How do you live as a Christian as a a husband or a wife? How do you do it as a parent? How do you live as a Christian at your job, your character, all the things that you're doing in your life? How do you live life as a Christian? That's essentially discipleship. Teaching other people to do what you're doing in all the ways that you're doing what Christ is doing. In all the ways that I'm wrong, don't follow me. That's what Paul says. Follow me as I follow Christ. When you see me committing sin or doing things that are uncharacteristic of a a Christian, rebuke me and then don't do what I do. And I will repent. But for all the ways that you are Christ-like, you are to follow that example. And these 12, these disciples, these apostles, they're the tip of the spear. And as Ephesians 2.20 says, these men are the foundation. They're the foundation on which the church is built. Christ himself is the cornerstone, but these men, they were the first ones. They're the tip of the spear. They're doing the ministry. They're going out and preaching and teaching. They're no doubt special in how they're used, but they're still called to be obedient followers of Christ. They still made mistakes, didn't they? In fact, we we see all the recorded mistakes that they do make. The Bible doesn't put them on a pedestal and say, now these guys... This is where you need to be. No, the Bible puts Jesus in that spot and says, Jesus is the goal. These men, as Paul says, are slaves of Christ. And you and I, our servants, are slaves of Christ. But these men, they were just obedient followers who God used in a mighty way. And so for our time remaining here, I want to just look at this group of the twelve here. Now, we're not going to, again, discuss them individually just yet, I'll take some time to walk you through some of their lives and and, uh, hear their stories. But I want to look at them as a whole, as one big group. Again, these men are listed in several places in the New Testament with only slight variation. Uh, The same men are listed at times different order, at times different names. But scholars have noted that there are usually, uh, tends to be divisions. There's 12 names. You can usually see three groups of four. Three groups of four, you kind of see their names listed out, and they seem to be sort of grouped and chunked together. And even when you see them living their life and doing their ministry, you kind of see this division. Peter always heads off the list. He's the first one in every single list, not just of this first grouping, but of the entire group of disciples, of apostles. So Peter is always first. Matthew lists Peter, and he actually says, first is Peter. Now, we understand that Peter is not first in terms of, uh, he's not the ringleader, he's not the, the head of the group, he's really the first among equals. He's the first among equals. We see that John really rises to prominence later on. Really, James becomes sort of the leader of the Jerusalem church uh, later on in the book of Acts, and so there's really no head, Christ is the head, but Peter is listed first. 
The first group always includes Peter, Andrew, James, and John. In many ways, this becomes Jesus' inner circle, especially Peter, James, and John. They spent the most time with Jesus while he was here on earth. They were given special privileges. Uh, they, did, they got to see stuff that other, the other disciples didn't get to see. And so that was the first grouping. The second group always includes Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, and Thomas, with Philip as the leader or the head of, of this list, if you will. We know less about these men in this group than the first group, but there's still enough to get a sense of who they are and what their story is. The third group is always headed up by James, the son of Alphaeus, and it includes Simon the Zealot, Judas, the son of James, also called Thaddeus. He's got a third name, which we'll talk about. And at the bottom of the list, every single time, is Judas Iscariot. Judas is last, and he's always, his name is frequently accompanied with some kind of comment referring to his betrayal, so you know who he is. Yet these are the twelve that Jesus calls to follow him, and then he appoints them specifically to carry this message in the earliest days of the ministry. Now what's interesting to note here, why does Jesus call twelve apostles? Why not ten? Why not fifty? Why not seventy? Why does he call twelve? Well, the nation of Israel was comprised of twelve tribes. Now Abraham is considered to be the patriarchal father of the people. But it is his grandson, Jacob, who's also named Israel, he gives them their identity. Now to Jacob was born twelve sons. And from these sons of Jacob, or sons of Israel, his other name, came the the tribes of the nation of Israel. So the twelve tribes come from him. However, over the centuries, the Israelites, they wandered away from God and they followed their own sin and their own wickedness. They consistently broke the law of Moses. They consistently broke the Mosaic Covenant. And for that, they were chastened. They were punished. Even the days of Solomon's son, Rehoboam, if you know the story of Rehoboam, he splits the kingdom in two. Ten tribes to the north and then two tribes to the south. The kingdom divides. Even then, the divided kingdom, they still rebelled. In 722 B.C., the Assyrians, they attacked and captured the northern tribes, which was called Israel. And then a century later, the Babylonians sieged and attacked the southern kingdom called Judah. And by the time of Christ, by the time of Jesus Christ, Israel was still disobedient and still wandering from God. And so this time of wandering, this time of of scatteredness in terms of identity, even though they still were a nation, but now they're taken over by the Romans and they're all over the place. The Messiah arrives. He shows up and he begins to minister to his people. It's really important that we see that God himself is coming down and finally dwelling, not just among and sort of around and the pillar and all that stuff. No, he's actually dwelling and walking among his people as a man. This is, this is a, a crazy, unheard of thought to a first century Jew that God, God in heaven would dwell as a man with us. They didn't see that coming, but that's what God does. And so Messiah arrives and he begins to minister to his people. He's one of them now. He's from the tribe of Judah. They can trace his lineage. Look at the beginning of Matthew. He does, he's a descendant of David. He has the right to sit on his throne. And while Israel as a people had wandered, the Bible prophesied that a true Israelite would come and bring redemption. Hosea 11.1, for example, when Israel was a youth, the Bible personalizes Israel now, when Israel was a youth, says the Lord, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Matthew 2.15 applies that verse to Jesus Christ. Jesus of Nazareth is that true Israelite, that true son that is called. He is the truer and greater Israel. And he comes to his people to restore them and to offer them salvation. He comes to his own. His own, we later on understand they don't receive him, according to John chapter 1. But he comes to his own. He preaches the good news. And then, this is what he does. He calls 12 apostles, 12 emissaries, 12 messengers to go and minister and preach to the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus confirms this. Look at the the charge here. Go back to Matthew 10, starting in verse 5. He lays it out. 
He doesn't just call them in. He gives them something to do. Verse 5, Matthew 10, 5. These twelve Jesus sent out after instructing them, do not go in the way of the Gentiles and do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Don't go to the Gentiles. Don't go to the Samaritans. Don't go anywhere except to the Jewish nation. Go to my lost sheep, is what he tells them. Verse 7, And as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. Freely you received, freely give. Verse 9, Do not acquire gold or silver or copper for your money belts or a bag for your journey or even two coats or sandals or a staff for the worker is worthy of his support. In whatever city or village you enter, inquire who is worthy in it and stay at that house until you leave that city. As you enter the house, give it your greeting. These are Jews going to other Jews. Give it your greeting. If the house is worthy, give it your blessing of peace. If it is not worthy, take back your blessing of peace. Whoever does not receive you, nor heed your words as you go out of that house or that city, shake off the dust off your feet. Truly I say to you, it will be more tolerable, tolerable for that land of Sodom and Gomorrah in that day of judgment than for that city. If you go to the house of Israel, you go to all these 12 tribes, you go to all our people, and you preach to them, if they reject you, Sodom and Gomorrah had it better. You know what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah. So that's Jesus' warning. This is the message to them. This is their chance to repent of their sins a thousand years plus, 1,500 years of sinfulness and turning against God. This is the opportunity. And he's sending his 12 messengers to the 12 tribes to preach this message to them. See, the Lord is all about redemption. Jesus is all about redemption. And his, in his glorious plan, he sends 12 men for 12 tribes. Is there anything special about these men? Not really. Not really. Now, we're going to see their stories as we go on. But I want you to consider the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 to 29. He says this, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. I mean, you were to look at, the, at the, all the disciples. You've got a zealot, a religious, a political zealot. You've got a tax collector. People spit on him as he walks. You've got seven fishermen. You've got all these people. You've got these guys. This is not your dream team. Going into ministry. Not many wise. I mean, they weren't stupid, but I mean, they were not great wise men. They were not mighty. They struggled in their faith. They doubted him all the time. They weren't noble. But he says, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen and the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. You don't feel like you're anything special? Welcome to the club. You're in, you're in a good place. Because God doesn't call these amazing... He doesn't, ever notice He doesn't really call celebrities to become Christians? There's a couple maybe in Hollywood. A couple maybe say they're believers. But by and large... He's not going to the most popular person and they become a Christian and start living faithfully for God. He doesn't usually call political leaders and world leaders and influential people. Instagram is not full of celebrities and millions of followers who love Jesus Christ. He doesn't go to those people. He comes to us. And He calls us to be His servants and His slaves and His messengers of the good news of the Gospel. And again, it's not that we're lowly and worthless. Of course not. We're made in the image of God. We've been given grace and mercy, and He loves us as children. But guess what? If you're worried that you don't have all these amazing gifts and personality and articulation, if you struggle in your faith, well, you're in a good place because He calls the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He loves leading people to the saving knowledge of Himself through people who... Otherwise, couldn't do it on their own. He uses people like you. He uses people like me. I don't know why he called me to this job. I really don't. But he did, and I'm happy about it. 
You know, I've told this story a million times. I remember before we got, my wife and I were even looking at anything with ministry, I prayed one day, Lord, whatever you do, you guys have heard this, don't make me a pastor and don't put me in Gilmanton. I was born and raised here. I didn't want to come back. And I'll tell you that, it haunted me like there's nobody's business. Now I don't want to leave. But he does. He, he, he takes the most unassuming person. That guy, really? You're going to call that guy? This girl over here, you're going to use her? Yes. So God, he takes these people and he uses them for his purposes. And his purposes are wonderful. Believe it or not, friends, he has been building his church for 2,000 years through the labors of unassuming people. Why are we still here? Because God calls those that are weak and unassuming and unnoble, ignoble, I should say. He calls the weak things of the world and he uses us to shame the strong. Again, none of the apostles, they weren't Pharisees, they weren't scribes, they weren't noble. They were fishermen, sinners, tax collectors, zealots, just the worst, the dredges of society. And he called them. Jesus had prostitutes following him. He had swindlers. He had thieves following him. The last person that he led to the saving knowledge of the gospel of the kingdom was a thief next to him on the cross. He called him. That's what Jesus does. And yet I can't seem to shake the suspicion that there was some connection between the 12 tribes and the 12 apostles. Now again, I don't want to go too far with this. I don't want to get into dangerous territory. But there's something going on here. It's not a one-to-one connection. I want to be very clear about that between the the tribes of Israel and the apostles. But I want to consider just a couple of things to take note. The 12 tribes of Israel are this. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Gad, Asher, Joseph, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali. Like Simon Peter, Reuben is always listed first. But according to Genesis 49, Reuben is uncontrolled as water. He's out of control. He's crazy. He's he's just, you can't predict the guy. And because of his sinfulness, he loses his preeminence. And Peter, like Reuben, was often hot-headed, uncontrollable, and he sins against the Lord only to flee in the dark of the night and essentially loses some level of preeminence. Simon and Levi are brothers, the Bible says, And it's said of them that their swords are implements of violence. They're fierce, they're angry, and they have wrath. In essence, they're the sons of thunder of the Old Testament, just like James and John. It's said of Asher, his food shall be rich, yet he shall yield royal dainties. Matthew formerly was a very wealthy tax collector who, when called by Christ, yielded his wealth and followed Jesus Christ. Zebulun is said to have dwelt at the seashore. He was a haven for ships. More than half the apostles were fishermen. Dan is called a serpent in the way, a horned snake in the path that bites the horse's heels, Genesis 49:17. The Danites were the ones who introduced idolatry into Israel in Judges 18, and for their sinfulness they were excluded and disinherited. And it's interesting, if you read Revelation 7, the list of all the the tribes, Dan does not appear in the 12 tribes listed in Revelation 7. He is replaced by Manasseh. Likewise, Judas Iscariot is the snake who bites the heel of the Lord, so to speak. He betrays him for 30 pieces of silver. And later, he takes his own life and is replaced by Matthias in Acts chapter 1. Again, we can't make too much of these connections. I don't, there's not a one for one. But it's just interesting to note that there's a reason that Jesus called these specific men. We'll never really know why he called them, but he did. He called them for a purpose. And he called every single one of us who love Christ, he called us for a purpose as well. There's a reason you belong to him. You're not an accident. If you believe in Jesus, it's not a mistake. What's more amazing that while Israel fell away from the Lord, the apostles all fell at one time as well. They were prone to stumbling, weren't they? They were prone to faithlessness. And he's always rebuking them. Why? You have little faith. You're seeing me do amazing things and you don't trust me. These are his apostles. And yet, even though they fall, all of them, he restores all but one. 
They all come back. And even Peter, who denied the Lord three times, Jesus restores him back. Thomas, the one who doubted, he's restored back. The sons of thunder, as crazy as they were, they're used mightily of God. He restores people. He restores them. And here's what they do. They go to the Jews first. They go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And then they branch out and they go to the Samaritans. And they go to the Gentiles. And we know from church history, they go to the entire known world. They spread this gospel of Jesus Christ. And what is the message of that gospel? That God has provided a sacrifice for sin. And through that sacrifice, the full payment to cover all sins and all transgressions has been made. And that sacrifice is in the person of Jesus Christ, who is called in the Bible the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus, who is God incarnate, came to earth. He lived perfectly, spotless. He died on the cross at Calvary, was buried, and then rose again the third day. He ascended to heaven and He sat down at the right hand of the Father. And all who would believe on Him and trust in Him would be forgiven of their sins and have eternal life. That's the message the apostles preached. That's the message that we're given to preach as well. And Lord willing, again, we're going to explore the lives of these remarkable men. As unremarkable as they were, they were remarkable. And we're going to see their lives and learn more about their ministry and their apostleship as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that we have an opportunity, a front row seat, to see the things that you're doing. Uh, To see these men who, by all rights, have no business being called to do anything for you, but yet you called them and you used them for amazing things. And we honor them as our elder brothers in the faith. We honor them as pillars because uh, they did. They were faithful to you. They ran hard after you, Lord. And Father, it's our desire to to emulate their example, to do the things that they did in terms of faithfulness, to proclaim the gospel to all the nations. Lord, we want to honor you with our lives. We want to be uh, Christians who obey you and follow you and have a, a heart for you. But we know that that doesn't come because we have some sort of inherent will to power through our own sinfulness. No, you call us. You reach down and you redeem and you save you choose to do so because you're a great and merciful God. And so, God, we, we acknowledge that, that we're saved by grace through faith in Christ. It's not of ourselves at all. It's a gift from you that none of us can boast about. We, we only have to give thanks to you because you save and you call. So thank you, Lord, for redeeming us and for saving us by your Son. And I pray even now that if there are those who don't know you, if they've never trusted in you for salvation, that they would see their need for forgiveness, their need for salvation and eternal life, and they would put their trust in you even right now and pray to you, God, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. Forgive me and save me through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. I pray that for them even now. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.